Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. And welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm the host of the show. This past semester, I co-taught with a theologian here at Newman, a course called The Holocaust and Its Legacies. Newman is a Catholic school, and so, once the students became comfortable with me, they began to pepper me with questions about the role of the Catholic Church in the Holocaust. Some of these questions, about the stance of the Catholic Church toward Jews, about the role of the Pope... Some of these questions I was able to give reasonably informed answers to, but then they started asking me about the behaviors and ideas of the bishops and priests who actually interacted with ordinary people in Germany and in German-occupied territories. And I looked at them, and I looked sheepish, and I said, I do not know, but I'm going to find out. So I'm thrilled today to talk with somebody who can help me find out. Lauren Faulkner Rossi is the author of Wehrmacht Priests, Catholicism and the Nazi War of Annihilation. The book is a thoughtful, well-researched attempt to answer exactly those kind of questions that my students and many others have asked. In fact, I may actually assign it the next time I teach the course. I'm greatly looking forward to talking with Lauren about it. So with that, Lauren, welcome to the show, and thanks for joining us on New Books and Genocide Studies. Hi, thanks for having me. So let's start out um, just by asking you a little bit about, say a little bit about about your background and, and how you came to be a historian. Uh, okay, I I was always drawn to history uh, since I, I took history in high school. Uh, it was an elective back then, so I, I actually chose to do it to myself. Um, <laughs> but I loved it. I was one of those nerds that sat at the front and devoured everything the teacher said. Mm. And I sort of gravitated naturally to the history courses at university I, I loved stories of all kinds. I'm a voracious reader. I was reading almost as soon as I could walk, my parents tell me, and I read everything. And so I think it's that desire to, to learn about stories and to tell stories myself that really compelled me to, to take up history as my uh, major as an undergrad. And then I was fortunate enough to have some very, very good professors at the university I attended in, in Vancouver, Canada, 
uh, who inspired me sort of by example as natural storytellers to try and follow in their footsteps. Um, And I ended up doing a master's with Martin Kitchen Mm. in his time was, was one of the big voices in German military history Mm -hmm. uh, and continues to be a very good friend. Uh, Now he's, he's well into retirement, but still, still writing, still telling stories. Uh, and he is, he is somebody that I sort of striven to emulate. I, I fall far, far short, both in lecture and as a writer, uh, compared to him. But, uh, he was, he was who really, who inspired me to continue into graduate studies. And from there I did a PhD and he introduced me to my, um, the, the, the scholar who became my PhD supervisor. And it sort of went from there and, and maybe it sounds cliche, but I feel like it's really the only thing I'm good at. I don't know what I would do if I weren't allowed to be a historian. So, uh-huh. so here I am. So you talk about telling stories, which is wonderful. Historians need more people who can tell stories well. Why did you choose to tell stories about such grim topics? No, um, I, I was always drawn to questions and topics that weren't that weren't easily discussed or didn't have easy answers. Mm-hmm. Um, and at some point it was sort of a choice between an, uh, antiquity, ancient history where uh, the challenge was to sort of f- try and find new evidence upon which to build new stories. So it's a different mm-hmm. kind of challenge or the modern era in Europe where it seemed like so much of the focus was on precisely the dark stuff and how our conception of, of humanity and humankind and what it means to be human really, really shifted starting with, with World War One, And it came down to sort of professors telling me, if you're going to do graduate work, you really kind of have to do the modern period because the topics mm. are drying up in, in, other, in other fields, especially in, in ancient Greece and ancient Rome. It's, it'll be harder for you to get a job. So then it was um, sort of a practical thing as well that, that drove me into the, into the modern period. Uh, but the final piece of the puzzle was um, I, I was born and raised Catholic, and mm-hmm. I sort of struggled with that uh, on and off through my adult life, and uh, in particular struggled with trying to come to terms with the behavior of the church precisely during those really dark periods of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I first started studying it, I do I, I tended to treat it as as many of my undergraduates have as sort of a monolithic institution that that simply did things that were kind of horrific and indefensible. And the closer I got to understanding what actually happened, the more I was forced to reckon with the church as made up of individuals um, Mm. who constantly disagreed with each other and who clearly didn't always know what the right path was. Um, And many of them made bad decisions, but made them thinking that this was the best thing to do at the time. And so it was this sort of striving to understand how it is that we all come to make decisions, but how particularly those men in those situations grappled with what they were confronted with and why they decided to do what they did, and then how they attempted to justify it afterwards. And that's something that um, I continue to sort of struggle with personally, even if it sounds like I've come to conclusions in my book. That took a really long time to arrive at those conclusions, and, and sometimes... I even think maybe I didn't get it quite right. How can any of us really know what went on in their heads and how they arrived at the decisions they arrived at? So um, it's, it's the, I guess, the intellectual challenge of, of trying to understand how somebody else behaves is what really drew me to this subject. Well, let's, let's start out with a little 
little context. What what is this? No need to go back to the Reformation, but but what is the historical context of, of the Catholic Church by the nineteen thirties? What do they remember? How do they? How have they? And how did they relate to the state? What was important to them? Oh, um, where to begin? Uh, <laughs> I asked you an easy question. I know. I was going to say you started off gently. That I I also struggled with in the book because, mm-hmm. you know, I wanted to tell the story about the church and the, uh, or I should say, I discourage my students from using that word now because what does it mm-hmm. mean to use the word church? Um, mm-hmm. I wanted to look at priests and bishops in Germany during the Holocaust. And I discovered as I began my research that you really can't begin in, in 1939 or even 1933 or even 1914, um, you know, all these benchmark dates. You, you sort of have to go back to the 19th century and, and occasionally even further back. The church, the Roman Catholic Church, is sort of an institution in the 19th century, I think, was really trying to find its identity vis-a-vis the modern secular state. And different popes had different ideas about what that relationship was supposed to look like. And I think just as, as sort of Pius IX was, was coming to an understanding of what that was supposed to be, Italy unified, which did, which did um, very interesting things to the Pope and to the Vatican. And then Germany unified. Uh, and the first thing that a united Germany did was go after priests and bishops, Catholic priests and, and Catholic bishops, because they were seen as a minority who couldn't be trusted for uh, among other reasons uh, and so after that I think the popes and I focus on the popes because they really did sort of set the course that, that members of the church then followed mm-hmm. uh, popes really had to sort of pivot and reconceptualize relations with with the state this is when you also get an increasing reliance on concordats which are the official treaties that are supposed to guarantee the right to practice religion for Catholic citizens in a secular state um, and they started, the first modern one was uh, in France with Napoleon. But there is a, a sort of rush to have concordats at the end of the 19th and into the 20th century. And, I, and I, you know, the state's not something that's monolithic or um, easily grasped either. And it sort of depends on which country you're talking about. Um, some states were obviously much more approachable for the Catholic Church. Think of uh, Austria, think of France up until the end of the 19th century. Uh, whereas other states like like Germany become sort of very unfriendly and, and there's not much of a diplomatic relationship, a formal one anyways, between the Vatican and Germany until uh, really 1920, uh, which is when you finally get an, a, a formal ambassador to um, the Vatican state. So it's, it's sort of a questing relationship, which is maybe why it's hard to answer your question. Uh, it's sort of a very short, succinct and satisfactory way. So what? So so that's a wonderful global answer to the question. What does it matter that these people are growing up in Germany as opposed to a broader European context? What German experiences and memories do they have? By these people, do you mean the men I'm looking? For? Sorry, priests and priests and bishops. Yes. Okay. Growing up in Germany, growing up in a united Germany, if we're looking at sort of World War One and and the the post World War One period in Germany. Grown men, particularly the bishops, will have uh, most will have memories as children of the sort of first decade or so of living in a in a united united German uh, nation. And as Catholics, they would remember that um, the state did not hesitate to attack the Catholic Church wherever it could, 
And um, Bismarck, who was the first chancellor of, of United Germany and, and really held the power at that time, um, treated Catholics as sort of an internal enemy uh, that had to be eliminated because their presence threatened the, the, the union that was Germany. And so they would remember things like churches with no priests because the priests had been thrown in jail for uh, whatever infraction they were, they were sort of perceived as having committed. Uh, they would remember bishoprics that had no bishops because the bishops were either in jail or had been forced into exile. Uh, they would remember um, a, a press in Germany that was quite vitriolic against the church. And they would remember maybe their Protestant neighbors not being very sympathetic. And they would, they, would, they would remember that the real lesson of that time was, although the state was eventually forced to back down uh, on the legislation that had been passed and priests and bishops returned sort of slowly, the state was not something to take lightly when it came to confronting it or challenging it or becoming antagonistic to it, that battles with the state had a high cost and that therefore it was wise to pick and choose the battles that would be fought. And um, the older generation of Catholic clergy, I think, probably would have impressed this on the younger generation as they were going through school and, and sort of seminary and getting set up wherever they, they whether it was in churches or in administration of some kind. It's really the sense I get from the research I looked at was mm -hmm. there's a sort of willingness to take on the state if it meant defending Catholic rights and, and the freedom to practice the Catholic religion, no matter what that meant. But anything outside of that you're sort of getting into murkier waters because perhaps the price is too high. So it's, it was a very sort of, it, it was a lesson that uh, it was, was embedded in memory, but also sort of continued to live with them as we get into the 20s and 30s. And we see the rise of sort of another increasingly an, an antagonistic regime that really doesn't like the Catholic Church. So do we know much about who became a priest and then down the road, presumably a bishop? Uh, right. It, so I'm trying to think of how of the best way to answer your question. Because I I sort of did my research backwards, if you will, when it comes to this, <laughs> I focused on the evidence I could find of, of the men who served in the military, the bishops who happened to correspond with them, and then worked backwards instead of sort of setting out to figure out where are these men growing up and how are they getting into the seminary and then how are they getting into the, into the military from there? Um, so my sense is that by the 20th century, uh, when it came to becoming a bishop, it, it sort of hasn't changed much today. I think it depends a lot on who you knew. Mm. Um, it's not quite as rigid as, as it was maybe in the 19th century where you needed a sort of pedigree. It didn't hurt, obviously, to be nobility. But by the 20th century, that was no longer sort of an essential element, but it, it did help that you knew the right people. Um, and that meant uh, in Catholic religious circles, not necessarily secular circles, um, specifically in Germany. Uh, if you're becoming a priest, you're usually from a fairly devout family. Uh, and I honestly, I couldn't tell if there was, um, if it was because, you know, you weren't the oldest son and therefore your place in sort of a, in the military wasn't assured your place in um, business wasn't assured and therefore you should go into the church. I, I couldn't, I couldn't tell you if that was necessarily the case for some of these men. Um, most of the documents that I looked at suggested a genuine and sort of deep spirituality, if not piety. So 
so I would say a lot of them went because they felt it was their true vocation, their calling, regardless of their socioeconomic status or their particular sort of regional background. They were there because they wanted to be priests, um, particularly the younger priests that I looked at. Um, but beyond that, I, I would sort of be generalizing and, and speculating simply because I, I didn't look at the right yeah. archives for that. Sure. So, so you start out at the macro level, um, looking at the bishops in Germany. Um, so how did the bishops, and, and maybe as part of this, you, you may need to say just a little bit about the relationships and the, the way the church hierarchy is um, organized and structured in Catholicism, but how did, how did the bishops respond to the rise of Nazism? Sure. So the bishops, the bishops are appointed by the Pope. They are supposed to work with the Pope and, and sort of carry out papal edicts and, and sort of papal policy, I guess, maybe is the word we would use. Uh, the, the Pope is the head of the church, and it's understood that as the head of the church, he sort of instructs and, and guides and sets an example for all Catholics, but that the bishops in particular are supposed to be uh, helping him get, get his words across to their... Um, their parishioners, their their flock, as it were, in, in whatever diocese they're stationed in, and the German bishops are are no um, exception to this. They were they're definitely supposed to be doing this. Um, in the 1920s, their, the Pope Pius eleventh uh, um, was on was generally on fairly good terms with the bishops as a whole, but like the Church, as a word, capital C, the Church. It's sort of um, misleading to sometimes talk about the bishops as a, as a sort of single monolithic group, because although they, they sort of stuck together and didn't disagree with each other formally or publicly, there was an awful lot of disagreement internally. Uh, so when we're talking about their reaction to the rise of Nazism, um, before 1933, most of them were very uh, wary and cautious, and a few of them were downright hostile and thought that this was a terrible political movement. It was openly anti-Catholic, um, said lots of really nasty negative things about the Pope. Uh, this is not something that we could condone as good Catholics. Um, and Nazism, by the way, came out of Munich, Bavaria, mm -hmm. which was uh, the seat of Catholicism in, in Germany. And early Nazism, as, as Derek Hastings' work has pointed out, was actually quite a bit more... Uh, influenced by sort of extreme uh, folkish Catholicism that, mm. than it ended up being when it eventually came to power. Mm. Um, so the bishops are also reacting against a sort of, um, what's the right word for this, a renegade, uh, a renegade version of Catholicism that's not necessarily in line with what, with what the Pope and the Church sees as the right way forward. But in 1933, when, when, um, when Hitler becomes chancellor and, and the Nazi party sort of becomes the party in the Reichstag, the, the bishops are sort of forced to change their tune because all of a sudden, you know, this is a legitimate government, and I should use legitimate in air quotation marks because <laughs> was it really a legitimate government? It came to power legally. Um, so they had to sort of deal with, with Hitler and, and what he represented. And so you see them all of a sudden negotiating and bargaining and trying to find a way to work with this movement that before then, you know, some bishops had refused to allow 
members of the SS to it, to receive the sacraments because the SS was deemed to be super, like the, the most hostile part of Nazism when it came to Catholicism. And after 33, all of this is sort of rescinded. And then in July of 1933, there's a concordat, uh, mm-hmm. a, a German concordat, the Reichs concordat, uh, which is a huge victory for the papal secretary of state, uh, Eugenio Pacelli, who had been trying to get a concordat between Germany and the Vatican since the end of World War I. Um, and it's, it's sort of depicted in the Nazi press as a huge victory for Nazism because um, Hitler's only been in power for five months. And, oh, my goodness, look, the Vatican, the Pope himself, is recognizing him as the legal head of Germany, yeah. and there's a concordat, and everything is great and rosy. And uh, for about five minutes, the Nazi parties sort of pretended that <laughs> the churches were a good thing, and they would be sort of um, left alone and were an important part of the, the way that the Nazis envisioned setting up their state. Uh, but then, of course, as we know, they, they ended up um, renewing their attacks on institutionalized religion on the Protestant churches uh, as well. And uh, the, the bishops were sort of left trying to figure out whether to stick to the terms of the Concordat, which gave them basic guarantees such as the right to practice religion and the right to run their own schools, or whether, uh, as, their, as the bishops in the 1870s did, whether to stand up to the state and sort of um, take a big risk because it wasn't clear what, what would happen if they stood up to Hitler. And as, as we see, if, if you look, um, not necessarily at my book, but at some of the other work that's been done on the, the history of the Catholic Church during the Nazi period, they mostly decided to keep their heads down and protect what they could of the Concordat in order to sort of um, not give the regime an excuse to go after German Catholics. Mm-hmm. So, and, and this Concord, am I right, also, also lays out what the military can call upon priests and people being called to the priesthood to do and what they are not allowed to do that. Is that right? Right. Yes. There was a, um, so there was a secret appendix that was negotiated and attached to the Concordat. Uh, and I should say the Concordat, it's a very top down process. The bishops themselves weren't even consulted during the negotiations. (laughs) It was really, uh, it was really between, four men and the, uh, two front two who represented the church and two who represented the the Nazi the Nazi state and the two men were um, Ludwig Kass who was a member of the Catholic Center party in, in Germany and uh, Eugenio Pacelli who was the Secretary of State uh, later became Pius the twelfth um, not incidentally and they so they negotiated this this concordat that had the secret appendix uh, most of the bishops didn't know about the secret appendix even until just before World War II broke out, um, which is kind of amazing because it sets out what would happen in case of general mobilization in time of war. And I always found this interesting because here's the secret appendix that is attached to a document in 1933, one of the first big treaties that Hitler negotiates, and it's, he's already preparing for war. So mm. anyone who argues that that uh, and there's increasing uh, there there's fewer and fewer voices I think who argue this uh, that Hitler sort of stumbled into war in 1939. Um, obviously, it was something that he always intended, always always envisioned, and always planned for. Uh, the secret appendix set, stated that um, any priests who didn't who basically didn't have an administrative position, uh, who who were not sort of exempted for this this and this reason, 
could be conscripted into the military in time of in time of war. Um, and if uh, of these priests, anyone who had um, not been ordained past the level of a deacon could be liable for full military service, which meant that they would end up carrying weapons. Um, anyone who had been ordained to the deaconate, diaconate level or beyond um, would not have to carry weapons. Um, they would then end up in, usually in the medical service. Um, sometimes they would be radio dispatchers, but um, they would end up in, in positions where they weren't necessarily expected to carry guns. Um, of course, by 1941, that didn't matter much because if you ended up on the Eastern Front, it didn't really matter uh, how you were serving. You were expected to be able to defend yourself at all times. And so there's all sorts of documents I looked at uh, where where priests and chaplains ended up having to, to um, defend themselves with weapons because they, they were put in situations where they had to. Um, but yeah, so this is what the appendix laid out as, as early as 1933, and, and it was really it's sort of a very clear example that um, Hitler intended to utilize every last body that he could when it came to military power, including going into seminary classrooms and in some cases into churches uh, to find to find those men. So you mentioned chaplains. How, how many? Well, maybe I should back up, actually. Let me, let me ask a question that's really meant for people who are not Catholic in, in the audience. Sure. Um, so what do priests do? <laughs> uh, generally or as chaplains? Just Well, generally, uh, let, let me ask it this way. What is the interaction between priests and lay people in Catholicism, and, and how does that translate into a military setting? Oh, okay. Um, yeah, another easy one, I, I know. know. <laughs> so that's something that um, I also sort of personally tried to be very conscious of as I, as I researched and wrote, um, because as, a, as a, somebody who practiced her faith um, quite diligently for the first part of my graduate studies and then sort of tapered off after, I had a certain experience of what the role of priests were in the lives of Catholics today. Um, which is not very much beyond uh, going to Sunday Mass and, and maybe once in a while going to confession. A hundred years ago, 70 years ago, this is very different. In fact, I, I think I would argue that World War II and the experience of the Holocaust is what really changed the way priests behaved with their parishioners, uh, at least in Germany. Um, that's just my own, my own sort of perspective, though. Mm-hmm. What was the pre? What was the role of the priest though before? Um, before World yeah, II? yeah. Why? Why is it so important to the church that there be chaplains and, and, and to the soldiers that they have chaplains available to them? So, so the priest um, for for a Catholic community, um, it's it's different for Protestants. For a Catholic right. community, the priest is is really the the um, the mediator or the liaison between a, a Catholic layperson and God. Because the priest is the one who dispenses the sacraments. So if you don't have a priest, you don't have direct access to God. Um, and it's hard to sort of over, uh, it's hard to exaggerate the power that that had on Catholic communities in the 19, early 1900s. Um, because this is at a time before secularization really hits Europe, uh, Western Europe. It's, it's already started to have an effect in certain areas. But you could still find um, large swaths of the population in Germany 
who went to church every morning, who went to church every day. You know, religion, practiced religion was something that was a, an integral part of their lives. And the priest, therefore, was essential. And this is why in the 1870s, when, when Bismarck and the German state went after priests and bishops, it was so devastating because you remove the clergy, you don't have access to the sacraments anymore. You, you're not baptizing children. You're not receiving communion. You're not having your confession heard. So you, you're not being forgiven for your sins. Uh, you don't have the last rites before you die. You're not having um, masses or burials. Uh, and this is devastating. It's, it's a lifeless parish, a lifeless diocese. Um, not having access to the sacraments is, is, the, is the worst thing that a Catholic can imagine, whether you're an ordained bishop or a layperson. Um, and this is, this is um, carried into the military. Uh, and this is why there are Catholic chaplains, so that the the Catholics serving in the military can continue to receive access to those sacraments sort of uninterrupted um, by the duty that the state imposes. And this is why the uh, the um, Concordat was seen as such a huge achievement, because the Church viewed it as the sort of state's guarantee that Catholics would continue to have uninterrupted access to those sacraments. Uh, without the sacraments, the, as a Catholic, you're not getting into heaven. And the yeah. whole point of this life, right, this world, is to get into heaven as quickly as possible. Um, so, the, so the, again, this is why the priest is so hugely, hugely important. Mm -hmm. So chaplains were stationed um, in, with their units in order to um, not only provide the sacraments for the Catholic soldiers who were doing their duty, who had to be there, who were conscripted into the military, uh, they were also there as moral guides, moral guardians, as men who, uh, in some cases, it was a little bit of home, you know, it was familiar. Mm -hmm. um, I'm able to still be as, as religious, maybe in a different way, but as religious as I was before I put on this uniform. And, and there's somebody here who is going to help me, who is going to be there for me uh, if I have doubts, if I have questions, if I'm feeling spiritually tired. Uh, I still have somebody that I can turn to who's, who's going to help me out. Um, so it really was um, somebody that, as even if you're not deeply, deeply spiritual, if you're if you're born and raised Catholic, which most Catholics were, um, still still practicing, still practicing. Um, again, this is before secularization sort of hits hard. Um, that, that priest is somebody you, you really want to have access to. So, so how many were there? What to what? How far down in the, the military structure, and you, you, you talked about chaplains being assigned to units, where in that hierarchy were they? Um, right. So going back to um, Nazism antagon uh, Nazism's antagonism for institutional religion, uh, and this includes, again, the, 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 Protestant, church, uh, the Protestant church in Germany, um, there was a sort of tension... And Nazi, um, um, how do I want to say this? There was a tension for um, men like Hitler and some of the individuals who were um, leading the Wehrmacht between not wanting the church to have autonomy or, or influence because mm -hmm. at some sort of basic level, Catholicism was seen as a rival to Nazism. 
Um, it was a competing ideology because both ideologies, you know, wanted the total sort of loyalty of the, of the men and women who believed in it. Um, so at a very basic level, um, this is the, this is Nazism's view. This is why they were, they would never have, have lasted, um, both of them together. And mm-hmm. there's, there's evidence that if, if Germany had won World War II, um, the church, the Catholic Church as an institution would have been eliminated for this reason. Um, so that's sort of one view. We can't let the church have too much power, in, especially in the military. But the other view is that, um, and, and Hitler held this view, wow, religion can be very powerful as a motivating factor. And therefore, uh, we can't sort of take it out entirely because if, if a soldier sort of depends on spiritual faith to, to behave as he does, um, then that's a good thing because you know, it will give him a framework to understand what he's doing and, and perhaps um, motivate him to, to give his everything and, and maybe a way that Nazism won't. So we have to sort of let it in a little bit. And they were also very wary of, um, before the war had been won, of estranging the leaders of the church in Germany because they, they didn't want to have to deal with a, a, a populace that might sort of decide that religion was something that was really important and that therefore they would defend against a sort of hostile state. Um, Hitler and the Nazis were very careful not to upset the German people too much. And I can go into more detail um, about that if you want in a bit. So, um, so, there, so there's this tension. And this is where the chaplaincy sort of comes in as, as an, uh, a body of men who, on the one hand, can't really be trusted, but on the other hand, who are, who are somewhat essential. Um, for the Catholic chaplaincy, because of the Catholic element, um, this loyalty to the Pope, who was not German, who was outside of Germany, who was therefore a foreigner and couldn't be trusted, um, Catholic numbers were very deliberately kept to a bare minimum. Uh, and there were uh, no more, at one time, there was no more than about 400 chaplains serving in the German military, wow. which is mind-blowing when you think mm-hmm. the, the, the Wehrmacht as an institution had from 39 to 45, had between 17 and 18 million men moving through it. And if you hold to the, the ratio of Germans, uh, sorry, Catholics to Protestants in Germany was about um, two-thirds Protestant, one-third Catholic. So 18 million men, probably 6, 7 million of them would have been Catholic. And there were only 400 chaplains at one time to serve the needs of the Catholics in the German military. There, in other words, there was, there was always a severe shortage. And mm. there were units that never had a permanent chaplain. So as a Catholic soldier, this would have been super distressing. And, and one of the things you point out is that, that there are priests whose, whose job, whose, whose position in the military is a chaplain, but there are also more priests yes. and people pursuing that vocation who are in the military but not in the chaplaincy. Exactly. Are, what are they allowed or not allowed to do? Exactly. And that's where the secret appendix comes in. So... Uh, <laughs> So because the, um, because the regime, uh, kept down, kept down deliberately the number of chaplains that were serving, the priests and seminarians who were conscripted, um, if they didn't get into the chaplaincy and it, and there was sort of a, um, a different, there was a set of rules you had to go through a process, a, a sort of, uh, an interview and vetting process to become a chaplain. If you didn't get through that or, or didn't get in, even get an opportunity to get through that, then you ended up 
in general infantry, basically. And depending on your level of ordination, you're either a soldier or you were a medic. And so um, there were countless situations in which chaplains became aware of priests, fully ordained priests who were not chaplains, who were, you know, either ambulance, uh, ambulance working with the ambulance or stretcher bearers or assisting doctors, um, radio dispatchers, um, who could not administer as priests because they weren't chaplains. And that was a military regulation. Only chaplains could administer as priests in the military. Um, but in some, in some letters that I read, soldiers were aware that there were 10 or 15 chaplains in their area, or sorry, priests in their area who were not chaplains and there was no chaplain. And so, um, sometimes those, those priests took chances and, and operated, or, or so I should say, administered as priests to their fellow soldiers. Sometimes they did so with the officer's understanding, with the officer's blessing, particularly if the officer was Catholic. Uh, other times they got into trouble, uh, were reported and, and sort of, you know, had to be very careful who became aware of what they were doing. Um, seminarians constantly tried to uh, f- find priests with whom they, they could work so that they could continue their, their sort of spiritual studies, their spiritual development. Um, but it was even harder for them because they weren't fully ordained priests. So they were also, you know, they, they absolutely were not supposed to be administering the sacraments, even according to, to church law, because they were fully ordained. Um, so it was, it was very tricky. Um, and uh, after 1943, the, um, the head of the Wehrmacht decided not to, um, not to fill chaplains' um, positions that became vacant. Uh, there was sort of a moratorium on, on chaplains in the Wehrmacht. And this was seen as, as uh, even uh, more egregious than what had been happening up till this point because we had just had the Battle of Stalingrad, which was a, a devastating loss for the Wehrmacht. And we, at that battle alone, there were lost, um, I might get these numbers mixed up, 19, pro, 19 Catholic priests and 15 Protestant chaplains um, were lost at that one battle. And those positions were not filled hmm. in, from that one battle in that one area. So from 43 on, whatever chaplains died in action would not be replaced, even if priests and seminarians are still continuing to be conscripted because they were conscripted right up until the end of the war. Um, so it, it was really this, um, this attempt by the regime to, to wait out um, the church and, and to try and sort of eliminate them by any means necessary, even if it meant uh, hurting the morale of their own soldiers or um, ignoring the fact that most Catholic uh, priests and seminarians were very happy to serve in the military, you know, for, for various reasons. Long ago, my dissertation is actually on um, the Habsburg Army in the First World War, and so I went through, I don't know, three or four cartons of sermons preached by chaplains. Yes. I, I assume the, the, the chaplains in the Vermont preach as well? Uh, yes. Um, they gave uh, sermons in their masses. They, they sort of informally, of course, chatted with uh, surgeons sure. came to them. Um, there was a, a bishop was appointed, um, the field bishop of the, of the Wehrmacht, who was a, a man by the name of Markowski, and he uh, drew up letters, sort of circulars that were, were printed and, and disseminated throughout the ranks of the, 
the military, his um, sermons tended to be sort of formulaic, um, very, very nationalistic, uh, obviously uh, towed the Nazi party line sort of very explicitly, very clearly. Um, he was not well regarded by uh, by anyone whose letters I read. Um, whether it was his fellow bishops who sort of looked down on him as an outsider or um, the chaplains who were serving or even some of the seminarians and, and Catholic soldiers who, who wrote about him. He was he was sort of not a very inspiring figure. Um, individual chaplains um, made much more of a mark. Um, I didn't get to read many of their sermons I sus- simply because I didn't find them in the archives. Um, but the ones I did read uh, were, were nationalistic in the sense that they encouraged soldiers to do their duty to their, to their fatherland and to, to defend Germany. Um, to trust in God, to, you know, hold firm, to, to be unwavering. Um, it's, it's sort of nothing very surprising, I guess, um, mm-hmm. in those sermons. Well, so, so that gets me to a series of questions, and, and I'll preface this by saying I know this is unfair and not particularly historic, good historical methodology, but for brevity, I'll say they or the priests, recognizing that we can't generalize that way, but... But what did the priests, what did they, what did the priests, uh, chaplains and so on, did they think that this was a just war they were fighting? Or, or did they even think about that question at all? I don't think, again, with all your, with all your caveats in mind, <laughs> I, I, don't, the, I think the majority of them didn't think about it. And they either, it didn't occur to them to think about it at the time, or they deliberately refused to think about it for what was most important to them, what they had been trained as priests to consider and what had been sort of trained into German priests for, for decades, if not centuries, was that the most important thing was making sure Catholics had access to sac- to, the, to the sacraments. Mm-hmm. And, and as a chaplain, that you're there to sort of support men who are, who are obligated to render a service to the state. And um, everything else is is sort of secondary, and it sort of has to be secondary because you're you're risking your life, and they're risking their lives, and and so sort of nothing else matters. And I obviously never served in a military, and never will. Um, but people I've talked to who who have say it's it's you have to remember that that's going on. And as a civilian, it's hard to sort of put yourself in that situation. Mm-hmm. Sort of have to consciously remember that you know their lives are in danger every time they go out. Um, so to, to so to sit and think about what am I is what I'm doing just or unjust? Is this war I'm fighting just or unjust? Um, is is sort of beside the point in that particular moment. Um, so I was sort of upset that I didn't find more evidence that they were thinking about this or talking about this. And it was only as I sort of um, forced myself to sort of try as much as I could to put myself in their shoes that I realized maybe I'm expecting too much. Everything I've read suggests that war is long, long stretches of boredom punctuated by extreme, agony is not the right word, but extreme excitement, right? In the most neutral way possible, I use that word. And those moments of boredom, some of them, I'm sure, would have maybe entertained thoughts about what they were doing. 
Um, but more likely they were, they were going to, you know, write letters home, try and find out, you know, news about what was going on in the home front, especially after the bombing campaign against Germany really kicked off. That was way more important to them, finding out what was happening with their loved ones than trying to figure out whether or not the war they were fighting was just. And if they did think about that, um, the, they had been sort of trained to think about it in terms of a life and death struggle against Bolshevism, which was, mm -hmm. you know, the, the Russian communism. And that was coming at them from both the Nazi ideology angle and from the Catholic Church, who since the, uh, almost as soon as uh, the communists set up, set up camp in Moscow, uh, had identified Russian Bolshevism as an uh, sort of intrinsic enemy of the Catholic Church because it was out to destroy religion. Uh, so they had it from both authorities, their spiritual authorities and the, and the state authorities, that Bolshevism was an enemy that had to be annihilated at any cost because otherwise Germany was going to be destroyed. So if, if they did think about whether or not the war they were fighting was just or unjust, they probably would have ended up saying, absolutely, it's, it's justified because I'm defending my, my culture and my religion against an enemy that's trying to destroy us. So it's tricky to sort of come to the realization that I probably would not have thought any differently if I had been in their shoes, simply because that's what you're being fed and, and you've, you're, you're being told this over and over again for years and decades. Um, and, and it takes a very special kind of mind to break out of that mold, I think. And that's why I didn't find very many, very many men who at that time were convinced that it was an unjust war. And that brings, of course, to the first question that my students asked, right. which is, what did they know about atrocities and how did they respond? Right. Um, <clears throat> so first of all, as, as a historian, you're sort of bound by the evidence. Um, mm which is tangible, right? So it's something mm -hmm. that's written down or a photograph. And everything they're writing is censored. Um, all of the letters are, are prone to censorship. And even their diaries, if, you know, if, the, if their day books fall into the wrong hands, if they're read by somebody else, they contain uh, sensitive information, they could get into real trouble. Um, so it's not surprising that there was really not much mention of atrocities, at least explicit mention, um, I ended up looking for references to Jews because that sort of came up a little bit more often. Mm -hmm. um, it, uh, it, after the the Wehrmacht exhibit, the traveling Wehrmacht exhibit of the mid '90s that that was sort of put together in Germany, uh, which which highlighted the Wehrmacht's involvement in atrocities. Until then, the sort of standard approach to the subject was to insist that. It was the SS and the Einsatzgruppen who perpetrated most of the atrocities on, on the Eastern Front. It was much easier to tell people, because then you had photographic proof, that Wehrmacht soldiers were in fact a lot more um, participatory in atrocities than had been assumed. Um, so it's hard, to, it's hard to accept what the, the chaplain veterans insisted after the war, mm -hmm. uh, many of them which was that they didn't know anything. Um, they didn't see anything. They hadn't heard anything. It was only after 1945 that, that we really kind of understood what was going on. Before 45, no, I never saw, heard, or, or witnessed anything. Most of them. Some of them did admit that they'd witnessed something, 
that they'd heard rumors, and it's always classified as rumors, rumors of um, camps where people were killed. Yeah, um, some of them said, we heard the word Auschwitz, but we didn't know what it meant until 1945. Mm. Um, I read, I think, two or three letters from during the war um, that made explicit mention of mass shootings. Um, but it was, again, it was a chaplain writing down something that he had heard. It was not something mm. he had seen. So it's sort of hard. And, and, and a lot of them, a lot of them allude to having witnessed um, the scene of an atrocity right after the atrocity had taken place. So not actually having seen the shooting themselves. So then you, you think, um, okay, well, maybe they didn't witness anything. Maybe they're being very careful about admitting what they've witnessed. Um, maybe they don't honestly remember um, because for some of them it's decades and decades later that they're finally willing to sort of talk about this. So as a historian, uh, what do I do with that question? You know, what did they know of atrocities? Well, I think it's hard to not know anything, especially if you're a priest and, and soldiers are coming to you for moral guidance, uh, confession even. Um, if, if there are any soldiers who are feeling uncomfortable with what they've done, and we know from, from Chris Browning's work, uh, among others, that a lot of soldiers initially had, had real trouble following orders to go out and shoot uh, civilians. Um, yours, are, isn't your natural impulse to go and talk to somebody who is going to offer you forgiveness and support? Wouldn't you, if you're going to be honest with anyone, wouldn't you be honest with somebody like that? Mm. Uh, and then you run into the, the sort of the seal of the confessional, which as a priest, you're forbidden from revealing anything you've heard in, in that confession uh, unless somebody's life is at stake. Um, but even then, I think that there are rules about, about what you can and can't reveal. And in the military, even, that's, that's made even, even more difficult because who are you going to report it to? The, the military authorities who have sort of ordered this? Mm. No. Um, it was understood that all of this was, was sort of to be kept very secret and not to be discussed. And again, if you're, if you're sort of living with the men and you're there for the men and you're, you're supporting the men who are doing a duty, you know, they, everyone's been conscripted and you can't get out of the conscription order. You, if you try and, and say no to the conscription order, then you're executed. We've got examples of that. Um, as a priest, what are you going to do? You're going to support the men, right? And that means maybe not talking about what you've seen or what you've heard. So they're, the, the chaplains are in a really, really sort of difficult and, from my perspective, unenviable position where um, they have to sort of be there. The men are doing horrible terrible things, but they have to be there because that's what they've been trained to do. That's their understanding of, of their vocation. Um, so I, I think absolutely my own, my own position is they absolutely knew what was going on, even if it was a, in a sort of fragmented way, um, because they only knew what they heard. They had no understanding of sort of the larger, broader scope of the operation. Uh, but they knew that there were atrocities and, and sort of innocent civilians being shot, but um, they had to be there for the men who were doing the shooting. Um, there was sort of no way out of that. So, and I don't know how, as a historian, you'd really find this out unless you happen to 
discover some treasure trove of letters or something. But right. and forgive me if I'm not using the right language. My background is Protestant, but are there cases where chaplains simply say, "No, you, I'm not extending forgiveness to you. What you did is, I don't believe that you're sincere in your confession." Right. Um, generally speaking, so so sort of removing ourselves from the the context of World mm-hmm. War II and the Holocaust. Generally speaking, <clears throat> a priest is supposed to refuse absolution or forgiveness um, to a penitent who fails to exhibit true remorse, true true um, sorrow for what he's done. And there's always, uh, with absolution, there's always a, a penance that you're supposed to do, and usually it's a prayer, but sometimes it's a deed. So you, so the priest can has the authority to do that. So going back to World War II and the Holocaust, would priests have done that <laughs> in a time of war? I, I don't know. I, I can't answer that question. Yeah. Uh, you might be better off asking a priest um, what, what they would have done in that situation. But I suspect, again, it goes back to this sense that, um, you know, how did they understand, what did they understand their role to, to be? Their role was to be there for the men and to help the men sort of get through um, their day-to-day lives while they were serving in the military. Um, I suspect that killing was understood to be part of that obligation, and therefore either it, it maybe didn't even come up in confession, yeah. or if mm-hmm. it did, uh, it came up because the soldier was, was struggling with it and therefore was, was, was probably going to exhibit some kind of remorse, um, and the priest therefore would have, would have mm-hmm. given absolution. He's, he's, he's sort of obligated to give absolution if the remorse is there. But yeah, it's it's that's it's a tough question, and again, I say it's easy for us to sort of condemn them for having served and not for having said anything. That was sort of the position I started started off in when I found out how many priests actually ended up being uh, ended up in the Wehrmacht, and none of them at any point said anything publicly against what was going on. So it, it's very easy to say, "Wow, they should have absolutely said something," especially because they're priests, especially because they're. They're sort of beacons of, of moral and spiritual authority. But but once you sort of sink yourself into their shoes, like literally, mm-hmm. it's a lot harder, um, I feel, to condemn them for what they did. And they, it, it was just impossible. What, what were they supposed to do, right? Abandon their men, um, risk their own lives and, and not have their position filled, and then their men have, have no priest or no chaplain uh, to go to. It, it's it's just it's really hard. It, it brings me very close to saying, uh, "Who am I to judge?" Right? Mm-hmm. Um, not having been there, uh, and I I don't like sort of ending up in that position because I think as as historians, when we tell our stories, it's almost uh, impossible to get away from rendering some kind of judgment. Uh, but what I aim for really is is to like try. Let's try and understand why they did what they did before we decide whether or not they behaved appropriately um, and what is appropriate behavior in any, in any case in that situation. Well, it's a wonderful book. It's, it's fascinating. There's lots more to get from the, the book than, than we've had a chance to get to. Uh, in particular, I would just point for the listeners who are interested to, that there's a really fascinating discussion of the way in which priests tried to balance their national identity and their religious identity during the war, but but we, we, we need to move on. I've taken too much of your time already, but but I do always end by asking you to um, to suggest a book or two, or, or maybe a movie, 
something that you've read or you've watched that, that was important to you, whether it's a new book, whether it's an older book. Another way of phrasing it is, what, what should I read this weekend? Okay, uh, so I've got a couple of different suggestions. Both of them I read while I was doing uh, my research. Uh, the, the more dense sort of, uh, the more academic take, um, I'll start with that one, would be Thomas Kuna's um, Belonging and Genocide. Mm-hmm. And that came out sort of as I was doing revisions for the manuscripts. It was after I'd finished my dissertation. And he, um, his first book is, was called uh, Comradeschaft, and I, I don't believe it's been translated into English yet. Um, but, but Belonging and Genocide is sort of um, a condensed English version take on the, on the theory that he came up with. And that's that um, genocide is sometimes, genocide during the Third Reich, was perpetrated um, because people wanted to belong, to feel like um, they were part of a community, a, a racial national community, and sometimes belonging to that kind of a community means you have to do unpleasant tasks together. So it, it's a very different, very kind of controversial understanding that there can be, um, it's not just peer pressure or cowardice or opportunism that compels people to do terrible things. It's also because they, they genuinely want to fit into the community that's doing them. Um, and it sort of blew my mind because it really, it, it resonated with some of the stuff I had read for my book. Only I hadn't been able to quite put it in the words that, that he used mm-hmm. um, this idea that there was maybe a positive motivating force for some of these men and that it wasn't all negative. I introduced it to one group of students who had, they, they really resisted this. They didn't like that this could have been yeah. possible. And it, it does, it, it's designed to make the reader uncomfortable. But I, I think the ideas that he presents are definitely worth talking about, definitely worth exploring, especially because they, they sort of take you away from Chris Browning's work, which I think scholars uh, have, are sort of, have accepted as the best way to understand what motivates men to commit genocide. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one. The other one, which is a little bit more accessible, um, just in terms of the language, but definitely quite wrenching and, and quite emotional from a content perspective, is Jean Hatzfeld's trilogy about the Rwandan genocide. Yeah. Um, he's a journalist who went in and interviewed people um, immediately after the genocide had taken place in 1994. And he produced a series of books. Um, the first one is called uh, Life Laid Bare. And it was a series of interviews he did with uh, survivors. The second one is called Machete Season, and that's actually the one I started with. And it's a series of of interviews he did with perpetrators. And the third one is called The the Antelope Strategy, and it came out a few years after. And it, it tells the stories of perpetrators and survivors together as they're rebuilding their communities. Um, and he, he tries his best to simply let their voices speak. Um, so it's very sort of simple, um, direct, um, sort of uninterfered with prose. And it, it's absolutely sort of devastating on a personal level. Uh, but I just couldn't put it down. I couldn't put them down. Um, I thought that, that the work he did was so important and so, in, in a way, precious to have those voices preserved, even the perpetrators. 
because for somebody like me who really struggled with finding evidence, finding the voices of some of these men, it was intellectually, it was a real sort of treasure, if I can call these books that, to sort of be able to immerse myself in the worlds of the perpetrators and then the survivors and then how they interacted together after the genocide. They're just, like I can't say enough about them as sort of uh, inspiring in terms of framing the kinds of questions I had and, and the sort of the answers I, I thought that I wanted. Um, he, he helped quite a bit. Well, I will endorse both of those suggestions. I've read them and they're wonderful. And I guess it's okay that I have a bunch of papers sitting on my desk that I have to grade this weekend so that I don't get to read other stuff. But <laughs> So I guess I'll end by just asking you what may or may not be a simple question. What are you working on now? Yes, what am I working on now? Um, so I've, I've taken a few years out. Um, I My husband and I had had our daughter, and it, uh, it it's taken me a little bit away, away from academia, um, which is why I haven't really done too much since the book. But I'm actually, uh, there is a book in the works. I'm not sure when it will come out uh, or, or even how long it's going to take to take form. But I'm working on um, trying to move away from the Holocaust because I, I sort of need a break from the dark stuff. And I'm looking at the relationship between uh, France and Germany at the end of World War II, sort of in the first, uh, the first few years. And um, in particular, looking at the treatment of German POWs in French POW camps. And the one camp that I'm sort of focused on at the moment was had a a seminary set up in it because there was a huge number of German Catholic seminarians who ended up there as POWs and they wanted to continue their spiritual training, even though they obviously uh, were, were prisoners of war. And so there, I won't go on too long, but there was a sort of series of, of meetings and the right people at the right time got involved and it ended up, happening that a, a sort of informal seminary was set up with the blessing of the French Catholic authorities. And most of these seminarians were able to continue their, uh, their training as priests and were in fact ordained um, sort of on time, quote unquote, and then went home to Germany and, and uh, helped in the reconstruction process uh, in the mm-hmm. post-war period. So it's sort of a, a microcosmic look at how, uh, maybe France and Germany sort of began to repair what was now a, a sort of centuries-old animosity uh, that later led to, as we know, the sort of the foundation of the EU and, and the, the friendship that the two countries enjoy now. Well, it sounds like a fascinating project, and I hope when uh, when you're done with it, you'll come back on the show and talk with us about it. But for now, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. You've been listening to an interview with Lauren Faulkner Rossi about her book, Wehrmacht Priests, Catholicism, and the Nazi War of Annihilation. If you enjoyed this interview, you can listen to previous podcasts through iTunes or from the webpage for New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. I hope you'll join me next time when we continue our occasional series of podcasts that address the question of how genocides might be prevented or mitigated. Later in the series, I'll interview James Waller and Carrie Booth Wallen, Next time, though, I'll speak with Bridget Conley-Zilkich about her book, How Mass Atrocities End. I hope you'll come back for the series. Until then, thanks for the download and have a great month.